Welcome to the Education and Training Foundation Inclusive Leadership Podcast, which explores how we lead our colleges so that everyone is given a sense of belonging and is listened to and feels heard. People shine in the light of being paid attention to, being shown that they matter and are respected. All of our communities of staff and students need to feel this regardless of their background, class, race, gender, culture, religion, sexuality and disability. No one should be made to feel ashamed. In inclusive organisations, we do not treat people the same. We treat them with the dignity and respect they want to be treated by. We offer equality of opportunity to all. We will explore how current leaders are creating inclusive environments, how they lead with sensibility and are self-aware and know the impact they have on their organisations. They understand their own prejudices. Whilst no one has all the answers, we will explore the questions of how to change and adapt to meet the needs of everyone and do it by listening to frontline staff and students and acting upon what we hear. I'm really delighted that we are going to talk to Ian Price today about how he's leading in an inclusive way. Ian, I wonder if you'd like to introduce yourself before we get on to our discussion on inclusive leadership. Thanks, Sally. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I'm Ian Price, the Principal and Chief Executive of the Bedford College Group, operating in Bedfordshire and Northamptonshire. It's a great job, and I'm very lucky to have been doing it for 25 years now. Thank you, Ian. I know that you have been trying very hard to work on being an inclusive leader for the majority of your career. So what does leading with sensibility mean to you? Yeah, it's a good question. I think sensibility... I sort of define that as about appreciating where people come from and responding to emotional states. A key thing is discovering exactly why people are working at the college. Why why do they want to work here or study here? We all have different emotional bonds, I think, with institutions. And the bonds are different. So some people love teaching and don't like being managed and others like being experts or contributing to a team or whatever. So one of the things I've tried to do is, is just learn about people and then just try and think about how we'll say, Duncan, the engineer, how will will he take what I'm saying? How will somebody else take what I'm saying? So it just makes you think about people on the receiving end of anything we do. How are they likely to interpret this? So that's what I I try and do. I suppose the the struggle is sometimes I think think you can't always accommodate everybody's emotional needs. I think that's quite important that we recognise the limits to that. You know, life is unfair, work is unfair at times, and people have got to cope with that. And I was very taken also the work we've done at Oxford, some of those things about people only actually do things when they're in the right emotional state. And the ideal one is joy. People do things for the sake of joy, but sometimes people are motivated almost by anger and fear. So sometimes you have to sort of manipulate those emotional states a bit and it sort of feels a bit Machiavellian at times, but you can only do that if you actually understand the emotional state that people are in. How do you get to understand that? But more importantly, I mean, how many thousands of staff do you have and how do you ensure that you model this behaviour so all around you model it? 
I think you've got to really enjoy being with people. I think that's one of the things that I think as a principal, I think we all do. We've got 1,500 staff and 15,000 students and and you clearly can't know them all. And it was quite a shock to me when we went past 500 staff because I pretty much did know all the staff when we had 500. And so you are more detached and you have to understand that. But I still think you can just get to know people, even just by saying hello. I remember doing some work with Lancaster University and they, they recognised that I think in a, in a single day I had about 250 interactions, most of which were just saying hello to the receptionists or just talking to people for a couple of minutes or even on the way into lunch and things like that. So I suppose that's part of the modelling is taking interest in, in people. One thing I have recognised, I'm, I'm not sure if you feel the same, I don't think I'm a scary person, but actually the power of position is quite scary to a lot of people. And that takes quite a lot of getting used to that they just see the principle. So I try and keep very calm and just keep that wattage a bit lower than perhaps it otherwise would be and try and model good manners and, and just basic courtesy. And, you know, most meetings I hold are for my benefit more than for other people's benefit. So just recognising that, that they're helping me. I think those sort of things help. And having an open door policy is very important to us that all of our managers have an open door policy, literally keep the door open when they're not in meetings so that people can see us as human beings as well. So I'm worried about that positional power because I think especially the longer I've been in post, you are aware that I don't think power is corrupting, but I think it's quite corrosive. You get a sense of entitlement. You should listen to me because I'm the principal. And I think you just have to keep a check on that. I really, really recognise what you're saying, Ian. And it's something that I try to do as well myself, but it is exhausting. How do you recharge? Because if you've got a really busy day, building those relationships, really listening and meeting need for another human being takes its toll. So how do you recharge so that you can do that day in and day out? I'm lucky I've got some hobbies that do take you away from things mentally, like music and reading and things like that. And I'm very lucky in terms of having lots of family around me and other things. I think it does take its toll on them because I'm quite an introverted person in one sense so actually it does wear you out all that interaction with people during the working day often you tend to just go home and want to slump and not talk to people and i'm become more acutely aware that that's not a good look in terms of the family so i think you just again have to be aware of that and recognize it does take its toll and you have to find a way of being able to recharge and that doesn't mean i don't enjoy doing the day bit and talking to people i really enjoy that but it does tend to be like say quite wearing and takes a lot of energy We've talked a lot about you and your leadership, which is very personalised. You really do see the need to build those relationships and understand people. But you are just one man amongst thousands. So how do you ensure that your team, their teams, create a similar psychological safe environment so that your staff and students feel listened to, heard, and their concerns are actually taken up. I think one of the successful ways we've done that recently is we have values that I created with everybody about 20 years ago, and we've revisited those. And we had a big exercise, and I thought people would see it as very corporate and not the sort of thing they'd engage with. And 700 staff engaged with the process, and we came up with a new set of values. And it was linked to what they wanted the values to be, you know, what their personal values were and everything else. Because that's seen as a very democratic process now, that can be used to help people feel safe. You know, that this is what the majority of staff want our institution to be. They want it to be caring. They want us to focus on high performance and that type of thing. So I think that helps in terms of just giving a degree of certainty around staff and constantly reinforcing that view about what the role of individuals and teams is. 
you know, where they bring the value to the organization. I struggle a bit with uniqueness, if I'm honest. FE is quite a commoditized sort of place. Teachers are teachers. We don't tend to focus on the individuals. We tend to focus on the activity, don't we, I think? So I think sometimes we, we don't help ourselves in that regard. We sort of see people as their job rather than as an individual. So I struggle a bit with that. But I think the importance of individual teams and how they fit in. I have a sort of positive dissatisfaction. I'm always very positive about what we've done and what we're achieving, but it's never quite enough. We can always improve further. But I think constantly stressing those positives is really important, makes people feel safe. This is good. We're doing a good job. And the history of safety, you know, we haven't made lots of redundancies over the years and that type of thing. So having that sort of sense of history and stability, I think getting the teams to keep repeating that is is important. Where do you see the, say, the role of tutorials and one-to-ones then in creating a bit more uniqueness? We tend to have professional tutors. I know there's different practices in different colleges. I met them actually as a group before Christmas and they're torn because one of the key functions for me about the tutor is to focus on student attendance. So it's quite a sort of disciplinarian type role, but actually their day-to-day existence is more around that sort of one-to-one and group tutorial, you know, building those relationships. So I think they can do that. But again, one of the big struggles I've had, and I still have, and I I don't know whether it's the right answer, I still struggle about this thing about if you're to get on, and often in FE we're about trying to get people to, to get on in life. I think there's an element in which you have to fit in, and it's the extent to which if we can't change society, do we change the people to fit in with the society that's there? I've got, I'm reading a fantastic book at the minute by Fiona Hill called There's Nothing For Me Here, who's, who would, you know went to a comprehensive in Bishop Auckland and ended up being a security advisor to three American presidents. And it's really interesting, that whole notion of how you get out of, you know, the cult issues talks about going from the coal house to the White House. And a lot of that was about fitting in, dressing the part, you know, losing the accent a bit, that type of thing. So I really struggle sometimes with that notion of how much should we be trying to change individuals to fit in rather than trying to change society to fit in with the individual. And I definitely don't have an answer to that. Although surely if you spend time and build relationships and trust, people may then begin to understand that at the moment I will fit in in this way because then I can change it in that way. But if you don't build that trust and faith, then neither staff nor students are ever going to change and fit in. So it is, again, surely about building that trust and belief in you. So I believe what you're telling me. Yeah, and it's definitely about you've got to gain the trust of the, of the students and the tutors and the, and the teachers particularly are very, very good at that. And, and spotting, that talent spotting bit about, you know, in the future you could be this. They can see that. I think it's just about how do we get people to that point, given the way society is actually structured. I think one of the reasons I, I struggle with that a bit is simply, I suppose, my own experience. You know, I was a grammar school kid from a working class background and everything else. And when I've talked to my teachers we, during COVID, we spoke to some of those. They said, you know, it was highlighted that what the head teacher wanted to do was turn us all into golf club presidents and the, you know, the chairman of the local conservative association. So the, there was a definite sense there about the, the mission of the school was to make us fit in with that world to be successful. And so, you know, that's part of my heritage was, you know, that's the way I was taught to get on, was to be like other people who weren't like me, rather than get them to accept me and for who I was. So that's why I think I struggle with it as well. And maybe it's also fitting into a world, not their world. Um, I think it's interesting. 
You've talked a lot about the staff. How do you harness the skills of all of your staff so that each of them is aware of their values to their team and the value they bring with all their differences to the whole of your group? I think in the main, it's trying to to just constantly, praise is probably too strong a word, but just show, demonstrate all the time, this is the value you are bringing to our community and to our students. You know, this is what you've done this year. This is what you've achieved. This is what we're achieving. This is the plan. This is how we're going against it. This is your part, the part you can play. And try and demonstrate that as often as possible and make it real. I think, you know, one of the things I've discovered over time is you can do a sort of thing that says, well, what, what do estates bring? Well, they make sure the place is clean and they keep the place safe. And that's very important. But you can also say, you know, if you, if you talk about something like student attendance, you can look at that and say, you know, we've got an example where people go off in our breaks, for example, in the mid-morning and therefore come back late because you can't get into town and back in, in the breaks that we allow people. So you can have a conversation about attendance and improving attendance and punctuality and things can involve all sorts of things like how we configure the gates to get in and out of the college and that type of thing. So you can bring people together as a team and show that they're cracking problems together. But I think that constant sense of reminding people, this is the value you bring, this is why you're in a job, you know, the, the jobs aren't there. We create them, don't we? And they need to be important jobs and jobs that help us deliver our mission and just keep that sense of this is why we're doing it. And it's always for the community. We have a sort of mantra in our college that the community drives the curriculum, drives the people, drives the money, never, ever the reverse, because that's a recipe for never misspending any money. Every penny you spend, you can link straight back to the community. So that sort of turning it into mantras and things sounds a bit corny, but I think it works when you've got 1,500 staff. It keeps things simple. How do you develop your colleagues then so that they do actually value each other and value their differences? I think for me, the key is always going back to the values and making sure that's built into your HR processes. So, you know, it sounds a bit trite, but one of the things I say to our students is that they can be absolutely certain that everybody has their best interests at heart, all of our staff, 1,500 staff, because you cannot get a job at our college unless you exhibit an interview those attributes and those values because I don't think those things are very easy to teach you need to employ even people in the canteens and and finance people you need people who take an interest in young people and like young people particularly but like students and if you haven't got that you're not going to be able to inculcate that I don't think so that for me is the key thing it's just making sure the recruitment process is right getting team players getting you know that sort of thing I absolutely agree with you but sometimes that can be really hard. I've had discussions with people where they go, well, I needed a plumber and he could breathe and he was a plumber. And my experience, though, is it always backfires on you. It ends up by taking more time and trouble. But it is that constant tension, isn't it? It is. I, I once had to, it's probably about 15 or so years ago now, had to sack one of our chefs and he was a fantastic chef in the canteen, not in the educational area because he couldn't cope with students with learning difficulties. He was very rude to them because it was an external agency. When I required that agency to get rid of him, the first thing they said, but he's one of the best chefs we've got. And there was no understanding of, he might be, but not in a college. And they were quite shocked that anybody would take that view, that his chefing ability didn't matter. Um, it was the interpersonal skills that he lacked. No, I, I recognise that. So are you aware of your biases and prejudices? And how do you address them? 
And do you know actually where they come from? Yeah, I can, yeah. I hope I am. I mean, people might disagree I, I, because I, I do think I, I think a lot about all sorts of things, really. And I am aware of it, and I have some irrational. Pre- I have an irrational prejudice, for example, against uh, private schools, and I know that's born from seeing kids when I was younger playing, you know, sport against them in the grammar school as being ultra posh, and I didn't want them to beat me at anything and that type of thing. <laughs> so they're deep seated. So I, I think recognizing them, then I can hopefully ignore them if you like. But it's hard to make them go away. Yeah, so you are shaped by your background. I mean, I'm not particularly religious, but I was brought up as a Catholic, went to Catholic school, so I'm, I'm quite defensive when people have a go at the church and things like that, even though I'm, I'm not a believer. So, yeah, I, I, I sort of hope I am aware of those. I don't think I have, again, background and everything else. I think I have a lot of natural empathy for the sort of the typical FE crowd, if you like, of, of both staff and students. So I don't tend to have issues in that way i think it often just comes back to it's soften that thing about fitting in again about i know that might be the way you speak to your friends but that's not a good way to speak to an employer that type of advice you know where, where does that where do you draw that line between you know other people are prejudiced aren't they it's that type of, of thing how much should you disclose to an employer about say a mental health issue and that type of thing just knowing the biases other people have so I think it's not just about understanding your own biases, but thinking about the fact that other people have similar biases and how do you negotiate life, knowing that that's still there, that's always there. I'm quite lucky, I think, because of some of the hobbies I've got, like music and things, you tend to naturally, and working in FE actually, you sort of naturally are exposed to a phenomenal range of people, aren't you? It's particularly in our job because we've got that luxury of knowing all the sort of movers and shakers in an area as well as the local communities. So... You know, I don't know many people other than people in our jobs that have such a rich set of colleagues. And, you know, it's like going to a party every day, isn't it, with actors and builders and care workers, and it's fantastic. So I think that really helps keep you grounded and minimises a lot of those biases, removes a lot of them just because of the contact we have with other people. I don't know if you feel the same. I do, although having experienced the world through my daughter's eyes, and as you know, she's mixed race, I am still shocked at some of the underlying biases that people display and they, when challenged, are completely unaware of it and very defensive. So it's made me hugely rethink what goes on in the world, which is why I tried to do a lot of work with our staff on that and was quite shocked because I thought the organisation I was in charge of was amazingly right on to discover how it wasn't at all and underlying some behaviours and prejudices that people didn't even realise they had were leading to discrimination. So I suppose one of the questions is, do you try and create an environment where people actually discuss their prejudices in order to try and stop that discrimination, which I struggled with, but tried very hard to create, but it caused quite a lot of uncomfortableness. I think we could do a lot more in that area. And I do have a worry about FE. I talked to a researcher on British Values who said that a lot of good work in schools is undone a bit at colleges because people peel back off into their own echo chambers. So, you know, traditionally you get, you know, female care and hairdressers and male instruction and yet they were mixed at school and suddenly we unmix them and so they don't naturally come across people in in the way that they were doing and I, I, so I, I do think there are things we have to think about a lot in FE 
about how do we mix students up to keep doing that. That is really important. I'm just wary about I don't want to over, you know, I think it's, I still like friendships and things to be, to be natural. I don't like the idea of trying to collect a set, you know, I need to get more, more friends who are black or whatever. I, I, I don't like that approach. I think it has to be, that can be very artificial. But then we are in that lucky position that you tend to come across a complete range of people that I certainly never came across in any other job I've ever had. Most of my other jobs, you come across people who are very similar to yourself. So I think we are lucky. So maybe I'm, I'm wrong in that. But I, I don't like that sort of artificial nature of how do I get a more diverse set of friends or whatever. Are your friendship groups diverse? Yeah, I think they are. I was thinking about that. They, they are in the, because of things like just being involved in things like music helps with that. Working in a college helps with that. Working in so the sector, working in education helps with that. If I think about that, I probably don't have many friends who are a lot older than me, if I'm honest. I suppose that is one of my almost sort of biases. I'm not very good with, you know, very old people who perhaps aren't very well or that. I'm not I'm not a natural um, empathiser with, with people who are particularly sick or things like that. So I'm, I'm very conscious of that type of, of thing. But I, yeah, I have, a, I have a good mix of people in terms of things like sexuality. I think it's just, but it's happened naturally. And I think actually for men in our sector, you're very lucky, actually, in a management position. It's because it, it, there's an unusually high number. There still might be work to be done, but in terms of the gender balance in our sector, it's very, very different to other sectors that I've worked in. Where you, as a male manager, you would struggle to, to know many um, female workers, let alone female managers. So, so I think we, you know, we are, we should be quite grateful for the environment that we work in. Often, uh, particularly people, you know, men like me, it, it, that helps with inclusion. I think and understanding just that day-to-day exposure. My final question is on allyship and what does it mean to you and how do you try and foster it? That's a really good question. And that's the thing I think I most struggle with and still feel a bit uncomfortable with. I think I always have this view that to have an opinion about racism or, or whatever, you needed to have experienced it. And I hadn't really caught on to the fact that allyship actually is almost the exact opposite of that. It's about not being part of that group. And that really helped me because, you know, I think one of my major failings in the 25 years I've been in charge is we haven't got enough ethnic minority senior managers. And I can't really blame anybody else for that after 25 years. And I asked to lead on that because, I, you know, to, would people feel offended if I chaired that group? And I was quite taken aback when it was welcomed. And then I got some people to help mentor me as well in that sort of field, really. And that's really helped me understand and then I can be a, a better I, I hope I can be a better ally and show that it matters to me as well so that was a very concrete thing for me and, and make it a very specific thing that I'm not focused on all aspects of inclusion I am going to chair the, the race equality bit that's the bit I'm going to focus on and other members of the senior team will focus on other aspects but it did take a long while for me to get used to that idea that should I be expressing an opinion should I presume anything you know that type of thing I felt really personally uncomfortable with that Um, and that for me has been the big learning journey for me. Can you explain a little bit more about you said about being mentored? I talked to one of our governors and said what I don't want to do is offend I think it's that you know typical liberal thing isn't it about not wanting to offend people I said "I I just genuinely want to sort of safe space where I can ask questions genuine questions and not be told off. And she found me, um, uh, somebody who ran an online museum in Nottingham about the uh, African Caribbean uh, museum, I think it's called. And 
that was fantastic just to talk to people about how you actually respond to, say, microaggressions in reality. And so I learned a lot from that, just talking to her about at what point does it become something where you actually say something and about how much do you tolerate, why do you tolerate it? And and that gave me that insight into uh, that, that perspective into just how much was still going on, which is still a shock. But also the to- almost like the tolerance, tolerance, she was sort of saying pretty much up to about 70%, you do nothing because that's never going to change. But we step in after that point. So I was, I was acutely conscious of that. And also she taught me about the importance of being an ally. And I remember I, I was talking, I won't name him, but I was talking to one of the black principals in the sector. And he said he didn't talk about race because that's what he was expected to do. And he, he referred to Obama's book where he said the same thing. It's not for me to talk about it. And I thought, actually, that's a good point. It's for me to talk about it because I can, you know, and, and that type, I think those sorts of revelations came out through that mentoring and just thinking about being a, an ally. So they're big things I've learned, I think. But I still feel, you know, I still feel quite uncomfortable. Actually. I'm still learning. And and also it's finding common points. I think I, I said at the AOC conference, one of the things that I, because I haven't experienced a lot of that, I was trying to find, how can I even you can tell it to me, but how can I even re- relate to it? And what, one of the things I did find was, again, going back to the 70s, being a Catholic working class kid coming up in, this, in this, that whole period of the IRA, and, and actually we were afraid of police. We didn't like the police either. And and just t- that type of, or being bullied because I was the only Catholic on an estate or the only kid that got into grammar school or whatever, just being an outsider, just trying to find experiences that could just help to relate to, to what I was being told rather than it just be a, an intellectual exercise. Because it is still quite shocking when people say the sort of things they they come across every day. It's it, it still really hurts, doesn't it? You know that, that it's still going on. And yeah, I think I think we're generally quite a tolerant country compared to others. But uh, so yeah, I'm really pleased. That I'm I'm still learning um, after 25 years. But I just wish I should have should have really started it at least 20 years ago. I did something similar, chairing, and all of our staff said, "Go and." get mentored don't ask us so we actually did that we got a lot of staff uh, and people of color who wanted promotion to actually be mentored by the senior team so that both could learn and it's been it or it was phenomenal so that has been really really amazing thank you ian and it is a privilege and the fact that it is a struggle you don't have the answers no one has the answers and thank you for your honesty and authenticity. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. This programme is delivered by Association of Colleges, commissioned by the Education and Training Foundation on behalf of the Department for Education.